This conversation talks about child sexual abuse, mental illness and other subjects which may be triggering. Please, if it brings anything up, call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 1800 RESPECT. We know that one in five children will be exposed to some form of sexual violence before they turn 18. Nobody can sort of go on living with those risks. When I did reading in my son's class at school, I'm just like, oh, which one is it? Like, mm. which, which one is it in here? Which is a horrible way to, you know, live. So I can deal with all these things as long as I can feel like I'm doing something. Welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling the stories of women living across regional, rural and remote Australia. I'm Em Herbert, your host for today. We are so pleased to be back with you for what is shaping up to be a truly fabulous season. Eight episodes spanning the country. Women whose lives are entwined with a sense of place, who are leading ordinary, extraordinary lives. Our guest today is journalist Virginia Tapscott, whose words have graced many a grazy her page. Ginny lives on a property near Aubrey with her husband Reese and their four young children, Oscar, six, four-year-old Eva, three-year-old Elkie and four-month-old Tully. Ginny, who was named the Carolyn Jones Women in Media Young Journalist in 2019 and last year named as one of 21 women who defined 2021 by Vogue magazine, is breaking completely new ground with her fight against child sexual abuse. The journalist has recently launched an investigative podcast series alongside the Australian newspaper and reporter Steve Jackson called My Sister's Secrets. It's an at times harrowing and deeply difficult listen, but it's also courageous and completely compelling as Ginny explores the events leading up to the abuse she and her older sister, Ali, experienced as children by their step-grandfather. Ali later experienced a separate alleged assault as a 21-year-old and died in June 2020 from an accidental drug overdose. These are stories we'd rather weren't real, but they are, and Ginny's bravery is nothing short of extraordinary. Her ability to look the ugly truth in the eye and speak about her lived experience is sending ripples across Australia. And she's creating a safe space for other survivors to come forward and seek the help and justice they deserve. We want to help platform her work to help others in the bush have these tough conversations. A note before we start. For legal reasons, part of this interview has been removed. Yeah, I I actually really struggled with knowing where to start. I ummed and ahed so much about it because you've had such a a big life and there's been so much that has gone on. But I did want to start actually with where you are right now. So I was wondering if you could paint a bit of a picture about your family, who's in it and, and where you're talking to me from. Well, I'm in our house that is on the property that my husband manages and I've got a babysitter here. Two children are asleep, Eva, who's two, and Tully, who's three months, and one kid on the iPad so that it's quiet and one kid probably about to get on the school bus coming home right now. And the babysitter's, she's like cleaning my house. So, Wow. Where do I find a babysitter like that? Yeah, she's a fairy godmother. Pretty, We're pretty lucky. Like help is just my secret. People are like, oh, wow, how do you do that? I was like, oh, I have a lot of help because <laughs> I couldn't do it. For the four under six, isn't it? Yeah. Was that always the plan? No, no. I bought a packet of condoms after Eva because I was like, okay, we are dead set. I don't want to go back on the pill, but I think we really need a proper break now. Anyway, I, I put a cord away in this drawer the other day and then I was like, oh, there's those condoms that I never used and now I have this other kid. But no, we like, oh, we were always going to have another one. Um, I just was hoping for like a three-year gap, but then I just like, I don't know, didn't do that. So tell me about kind of everyday life. I mean, it's I have one and I have a lot of help and it drives me crazy. So I just actually can't wrap my head around it. So 
what is life like on a day-to-day basis on the property? Do you spend a lot of time outside? Is the land a bit of a saving grace for raising your kids? Yeah, I think we probably take it for granted a bit because I just was on holidays with my mum who lives in town and yeah we we sort of can't you can't do as much outside there like as soon as they step out her front door they're like on the road and I'm just like get off the road you've got to come inside whereas here a lot of the time I'm sort of pushing them out the door and telling them to watch out for snakes and giving them a snake complex it's just very messy you can't have a tidy area when there's all of them on the go and just trying to feed all of them and stuff. I think I've had to let a lot of things go, but I know it's not forever. Mm. You have to try and enjoy the other things. What have you let go? Oh, like having um, a certain amount of tidiness and order, which is, you know, that's, that's nice to just be like, Oh, okay. Well, that's not for me right now. Um, I was pretty, Um, full into like zero waste and like lowering our carbon footprint Mm. and growing our own food and I had to dial back on some of those things like it's still something that I love doing and I I get a lot of joy from like not completely ruining the planet yeah it just gets to the point where it's like well I just I can't physically at the moment you know there's only so many hours a day exactly and they are such time-consuming practices. I mean, there's only so much sauerkraut you can make when you've got four people <laughs> all demanding things from you at that same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also, you know, exercise is a really big part of your life. How do you fit that in as well around your four people, little people? Because is that quite a big thing for your own well-being and, and headspace? Yeah. So some might consider it's extreme, but after Eva was born, we bought a treadmill. Mm. Um, we looked online for secondhand ones because it was middle of COVID and everyone was like, get me a treadmill. I can't get to the gym. But I was just like, get me a treadmill because I can't go jogging with two two or three children. So we bought that and I love it. Like I was like, I've got to not get too in love with this because I think it, it's right. It's so accessible to right here. But I've just really got to moderate how much I get on that thing. Well, but it's just such yeah. a nice release for me oh it's critical and just you know you just have to change how the release happens that I think also well you know the fact that you do your work that you do from the bush remotely whilst you're raising four humans is is pretty mind-boggling but the fact that you've had such incredible accolades so like you won the 2019 Carolyn Jones Women in Media Young Journalist Award which is just so cool what was that experience like for you and and also how did that kind of change your resolve around what you had to say mattered oh well that women in media um award I didn't really have much of I'd had applied for a um through I had applied for a mentor through um women in media years ago when I was working in Mount Isa and I wasn't successful like I think that they were a newer organization and then less resourced at that time and then I saw the um, award come up and I applied for that because I'd, I'd had a few things bubbling along that year. Like I'd done the um, regenerative farming podcast and a few stories for Gracie Her that I was pretty proud of. Yeah. And I, so I applied and I won it and it was just, it was so lovely for people to just actively be wanting to give you a leg up. Like yes. that's all they wanted to do. That's what that award is. It's just like, oh, we just want to see you get to where you want to go. And I was like, yes, thank you. Because, <laughs> yeah, I was just, I'm always by myself being like, is anyone even reading this or listening to this? Or, and so, and they are just the most, Caroline Jones, you're like, you've got to meet her to believe her. She's just a, a lovely, lovely woman who just wants to help, you know, young women in the industry. And um, yeah, so they, I would not have made my break into, um producing content for like metros Mm. metro um newspapers um the major mastheads without that award they introduced me to the editor of the australian and like in in person and then she was like yes we need you to be um freelancing for us because if we're not covering the bush properly we're not doing our job and i was like yes so that was how that went and that was all before alex died um Mm. so 
yeah and then after she died they were still there like it, even when like my year was over with that award they just they kept sort of they keep emailing you to see how you're going and calling and messaging and um all sorts of different kinds they of just support. weren't going to let you not be a successful journey yeah exactly <laughs> that was totally what it was it was just an absolute life changer and to then be moving into the sexual violence reporting mm. um they were there all with me the whole way with that too mm. um so it sort of initially was um with all my regional like I wanted to cover regional issues and I still would like to do that um but for the moment and they just like they just transitioned to that with me and just amazing how would you uh see yourself your storytelling role or, or what do you think how do you classify your journalism are you an investigative reporter is that what you would call yourself I don't know what to call myself but I can tell I, I admire the reporters and um, content makers I see who just ask questions and say things and cover issues that nobody else wants to touch mm. so I would hope that could be like you know my signature is covering issues that are too hard for people to do or people don't want to talk about it makes people a bit uncomfortable you're mm. asking questions that are uncomfortable because mm. that's how we learn like I a lot of the time in the media things get very adversarial like someone will like the prime minister will say something and everyone will like jump down his throat because you've said the wrong thing you've said it wrong and you've upset a lot of people and whilst you know everyone's well, well within their rights to say look that wasn't appropriate and this is why I feel like the conversation needs to be more like well why wasn't that okay how can we bring you along with us yeah because you know Scott Morrison is one of many who are not on the right page yeah whilst I'd like to think that my reporting is awkward I don't want it to be adversarial mm-hmm. Like I'm not that, I'm also not that kind of person. Like I can't, like I would compulsively smile if I had to shake the Prime Minister's hand. Like I could never do, like be that adversarial with somebody. Like I'm just such a pleaser and I'm just trying to get along. Yeah. But also you can get along and be like and challenge people. It's so true. It's so true. You can ask confronting questions without being combative as well, because I think the old saying, you you catch more flies with honey than vinegar to a degree, but not that nicey, but you, there's Mm. nobody's going to want to have a conversation and there's no dialogue if it's not uh, from both parties. And people have to, essentially, people have to like you to want to listen to what you have to say. You know, like it's very, it's very difficult. Um, it's a fine line, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to be curious about it. Yeah, and well, to be honest, Ginny, what you're doing is completely groundbreaking. Like it's unprecedented. There's no one asking these questions and writing the op-eds you are and and the exclusives that you are for the Australian and and the series of articles from last year. So the fact that you're doing it whilst a mother to young children from the bush from through that country lens is something that it's just it's a moral obligation to 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 talk to you <laughs> and to to pick your extraordinary brain and, and I want to get on to that in a second but I just before we move off your career um Vogue magazine you know you were one of the top 21 women who defined 2021 in in their in their Christmas issue? I mean, did you expect to have this career from the country and to have this platform? No, but then I started doing things and people didn't tell me no. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I just sort of would think, oh, I wonder if I can do that. Well, why not? You know, I'll do it until someone tells me no. And people have said no to pieces that I've written and things that I've worked on which is fine but you know 90% of the time they've said yes and I worked early on with this really incredible photographer who you probably know whose photos have been in grazing her Josh Smith because we used to like buddy up for stories Mm. and he'd take the photos and I'd write the words and we were on a story once and he was like if it was easy everyone would be doing this it's not it's not that easy and so that's why we're here and it does pay off I guess but there's, you know, sacrifices as well with trying to cover stories like that. 
Yeah, in terms of that, that sacrifices, like where do you walk that line though between things being difficult because it's not easy and things being really bloody hard and is this good Oh, for unmanageable. Me? Mm. Yeah, unmanageable. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I've always, sometimes it's hard to see until a little way down the track and you look on the situation as a whole and you're like, oh, I think we did all right there. But at the time when you can't, you know, get into certain rooms because there's stuff on the floor and your kids are crying because they don't know what's going on because they don't have any sort of routine. <laughs> then you, like, in the moment, you're sort of questioning whether you, you're doing the right thing. I'm very, I'm just so lucky because it's a, in a freelance capacity, you're working and then you're not. Yep. So... I think we sort of, we push it, push it, push it. And then it's the end of the job. And then I'm not doing it anymore. Mm, yeah. So is it, do you find it lonely working by yourself? Well, I think I maybe did initially, but now I don't really know how I would go back. I, I feel like I'm going to spread my wings here in a minute because I know I'm not having any more children mm. and you get there and because you know how like, well, between kids, you sort of like, well, I won't do that because I know I'm going to have another baby here in a minute or I'm, I'm just going to wait. And, and now I'm just like, oh, what am I going to do? I, I didn't even feel like going back to the office or working with people now. <laughs> so I think I've just, I could. Like I totally would be, I'd like to have colleagues again, I think. Mm. Yeah, but you just learn to deal with it. Well, what would be the platform that you dream of? I mean, you're in a national broadsheet and you, you have this incredible platform from a national sense, what would you like to do or where would you like to go from there? Mm, yeah, it's very hard to say. Like I'm honestly all over the shop at the moment. You've got me at like a, a crossroads. Mm. Um, like I was considering med school, but then I can't really hold a scalpel or look at cuts and grazes. So I probably maybe not for you. can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Law, like I, I, I'm looking at sort of some kind of legal advocacy. Yeah. Um, but you know, then Reese is like, did you really, not many people can do what you do. And as in my husband, Reese, and I was just like, yeah, that's probably, I should probably just keep, you know, working freelance. Well, you're pretty bloody good at it. So we'll, um, <laughs> it's a good place to at least start. So you have just uh, launched your podcast that you've made in conjunction with the Australian newspaper, um, My Sister's Secrets, and it's in the top 10 uh, most listened to podcasts in Australia. So congratulations. That's just enormous. I'd love you to you. give me a pr- or give our community a premise around what it's about and and what you are hoping to to achieve through the podcast. Well, I went to my editors at The Australian a year ago, a bit over a year ago, and just said, look, I want to go right back to the beginning of when my sister and I were sexually abused at like ages of three and seven. Mm. and ask people what they knew and talk to my mom about exactly what happened because I've never really had these conversations properly with her you know I want to know I just I I feel like the more I can know about the situation the less afraid of it I'll be because it was sort of this thing that happened that was in isolation and had no context so it was this awful awful thing that's happened that you never really get an understanding of Mm. Um, I think that might be like pretty common for um, child sexual abuse. And I went to the Australian and another platform and I sort of pitched it to both of them and was like, whoever gives me, you know, the most episodes or like comes on board with a better deal, I'll go with them. And the Australian were just from the get-go. They were like, we would be devastated if we couldn't do this podcast with you. Let's do it. And so from the start was going to be like six to eight episodes um, of just going back and asking these questions that I'd wanted to ask since that happened when I was like three or four and also highlight the Me Too movement that had happened since I'd already started being public about um, our abuse and the later rape of my sister in their newspapers Mm. because that was just astonishing to me. It was just astonishing that I can be 30 years old and not know um, that these men had offended like on such large scales and that I was just one and my sister was just one. 
Um, so we covered that Me Too movement that unfolded in our small rural community um, as well. And who are, the, who are the people that you talked to throughout the investigative series? Uh, I, my nan's best friend, who on one occasion nan confided in her that she caught her husband, which was my step-granddad, uh, sexually abusing myself and my sister in our beds. And mum, my husband, uh, my friends from school who I disclosed to, initially which was when I was about like 16 I didn't tell anyone till I was 16 like not a soul except for my sister and I I think we might have talked about it every now and again I can't really recall this uh, a very distant relative who had been abused by my step-grandfather also who reached out to me on Facebook messenger after she read my article then we sort of moved into the territory of the later rape of my sister um and all the people she disclosed to about that, other victims of that perpetrator who came forward, which was just huge. I sort of heard along the grapevine, like a, a friend of my mum's said, look, this happened to my sister. Do you want to talk to her? And um, mum was like, yes. And then she eventually got in touch with, I eventually got in touch with her. So this is how that it always is. It's like secondhand, secondhand, this happens person. I think, you know, like it's all very sketchy it's because like a spider it's so web. sensitive. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And then I eventually got her on the phone and she was just so like, she was just clear as day, like told me what happened, said she would go on the podcast and just illustrate how how long people hold on to these experiences because they feel like it's in isolation, like that didn't happen to anybody else. And she didn't tell her own family that this happened um, until she heard my sister's story, like after Alex died. I I was just blown away by, she was so selfless in that. She was just like, I'll help you. Like that can't be a nice thing for her to go over. I will say that was why that was significant. It was an attempted rape, Mm -hmm. but the circumstances preceding the attack um, that she escaped were like very similar to circumstance it was the same um, perpetrator and very similar circumstances and one of my questions to her was you know do you think if you had have been blind drunk that you would have been able to get away and she was like no no if I was if I was drunk and Mike passing in and out that I, he would have been able to rape me and I was just like it was just a huge moment I felt so I just felt so justified in doing the whole podcast because I second guess myself every day, multiple times a day, whether really? I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. And what were your questions in your head? Like, why wouldn't it be the right thing? What were your concerns? Well, I'm not hurting people. Like it's the actions of the predators that have hurt people. But by going over that with a fine tooth comb and putting, on such huge platforms for everybody else to view and listen and pass judgment on is going to hurt people that I love Mm. and I go through this thought process of weighing up the benefits of being quiet and potentially a lot more people either trying to battle on in silence or more people also um, becoming victims themselves yeah. because we're not highlighting this issue and and acting that itself acting as a deterrent to future predators yes um and I just I keep coming up with well it's better for everyone in the long run if we do talk about this issue and we do make it public and we hold up our own situation as a bit of a learning resource if you will mm. for other people to be like that's a very good insight into how the predators operate and how the families operate and how the victims operate. I think, you know, you are speaking about the unspeakable for so many people. I mean, you're shining a light into humanity's darkest corners and it is incomprehensible for most people. That's why it's so difficult to hear because nobody thinks that child sexual abuse is happening on their streets and in their communities and, you know, in their bush towns and, you come from a family that perhaps you would just wouldn't equate with child sex abuse. You know, you grew up on a farm and you rode beautiful horses and 
you went to the beach every year and it looked like you had a lot of love and a lot of support in your family. And then we're talking about silence and, and the fact that people aren't disclosing. What have you learned about silence? Well, it can become unbearable as we have experienced firsthand in our family. Uh, people will come up with a, a very clever um, set of tools and destructive ways that they cope with the pain and the discomfort of not being able, not understanding what's happened and why it's happened and not being able to talk about it. We know that not talking about it is devastating. And I, it's weird that, yeah, it's weird that, like, who do we think sexual abuse happens to? Like, it's funny, it's kind of odd that we, we do sort of equate that with, I don't know, like, lower socioeconomic, I'm not sure um, now, but there's definitely over and over again people have told me, oh, we just we wouldn't think that would happen to you. I just think families across all social, cultural, economic, um, diverse backgrounds, it would be happening in. It's just um, some social groups would be better at hiding it. Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't have, my family probably didn't have um, family and community services sort of rocking up to their house, um, checking in on what was going on and Mm -hmm. um, people had no cause to be concerned from the outside. But, yeah, the more people speak up, the more we understand that it's across all social, cultural, economic backgrounds that this is occurring. And at the end of the day, silence did not help your sister Alex. It did not serve her. Is this in some way for Alex? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, it. No. I, I think, she, well, she was, but it's such a double-edged sword. She would never have gotten the I don't think she would have been able to heal from talking about it like I think she was so ashamed and so embarrassed and so just terrified of people knowing that I think she's never sort of got the release that I for instance get from being like yeah well this did happen and it was wrong and it wasn't my fault Mm. um I just don't think like it was it was almost as if it was too far gone for her Mm um sadly but yeah do you feel like you have got some healing oh I've gotten a heap more context Mm. like understanding of what happened and I find that helpful I don't know if everyone would but you know it's nice to just be able to ask your mum so exactly what happened and why didn't you go to the police and I've got full understanding of of where her head was at at that time and the considerations that she had to take into account and I understand Mm. why she did what she did whereas Alex sort of went to her grave not asking that of mum and not asking that of nan just it gets confused with love and like do you not really love me but I I I I believe Mm. I, I can't really say for sure but so I still am able to you know, enjoy those relationships with my mum and everyone because I understand that they love me, that there was a very complex set of factors um, that involved in the decisions that were made and that, yeah, this is how it's unfolded. And, yeah, I've been able to let go of a lot of things that I didn't even know I was sort of holding on to. Mm, that unconscious resentment or um, distrust. Yeah. Why yeah, exactly. why did your mum not go to the police? So there was there is still, I, I don't know, but at the time 30 years ago, there was a certain level of stigma um, around if a family came forward to say that, you know, multiple children in that family had been abused by a sexual predator, that knowledge would become public knowledge. It would become widely known in a small rural community. And I just think the adults in the family felt that it was better that we not be known as that family with the little girls that had been interfered with. In a country town, you know, a small country town, was that kind of the concern as well is, is just the, the Bush Telegraph, how quickly everybody knows? Oh, everybody's wanting to protect their reputation. Nobody wants to be seen in a bad light. Not I don't want to be seen 
in a bad light. I'd like to keep my reputation intact. But the other thing is, do you want to put your kids through police you know, interviews? Mm. Do you want to... Who um, are four put, and seven? Yeah. Tiny. Do you want to put your children up on the docks? Do you want your kids' stories potentially questioned? The legal system, I'm not sure what it was like back then, but I would imagine it wasn't too common that trials like this were taking place and that they didn't have the aids and um, systems in place now that they have to make it a bit easier for kids who are testifying. And even if they did have those things, mum didn't know about them. Nobody knew about that kind of thing. And so, you know, on the hop, personal agony of the information that your children have just been like offended on in the most horrific way she's lost her husband like a few years earlier her mum was like helping every day with everyday life like she relied on her mum she loved her mum unfortunately she was married to a horrible horrible man and how do you keep that together I just feel like mum wouldn't have seen many ways out other than to prevent it happening again, which she thought she did, and to try and, you know, just keep us in a loving environment on going onwards, which she did by and large, what would, whatever was within her power. The person that's hard work to get your head around is my nan, who we know now um, as a result of interviews in the podcast knew that he offended on us multiple times and lived with that knowledge and still had us at her house and didn't divorce him or leave him and didn't do a lot of things. And how I wrap my head around that is when people are living with personal agony like that of knowing that someone you've brought into the family has done something horrific to your grandchildren that you love, you can't deal with that. And so you put it in a box and you pretend that that's not your life and you can't deal with it. And then it happens again and again, and then it's too far gone. And you're like, shit, if I say something now, I'm basically complicit, which she was. So you just put it in, in the box just gets bigger, I guess. So I, that's how I understand my nan. And like, I can remember from the feel of her and the way she was with us and the way you know what the things that she said and did like that the love was real that she had for us um but unfortunately she just didn't act in a way that was in our best interest because maybe she wasn't emotionally equipped for that Mm. she didn't know what best practice in in some ways she didn't know what best practice was for that situation what do you do well what do you do I mean what do you do exactly (laughs) you tell me I still don't (laughs) I haven't seen a pamphlet on that yet. Yeah. <laughs> there probably would be one, but I haven't seen it. And I'm sure as, I'm sure as hell there wasn't a pamphlet on it like 30 years ago. But like the obvious would seem to leave your husband. Yes. Um, make up a story. Make it up. Like yeah. just say, well, I don't like you anymore. So mm. get out of my house. Because it was her house. It's mm. Like she wasn't financially beholden to him or anything like that. Um, it's just people are saving face they're just keeping it together they just they're like wow that's shit and I hope that they don't the girls don't remember that and if I bury my head deeply enough mm, this will never have happened yeah I think and then she would have seen us grow up she would have seen us grow up and excel I'm not tooting my own horn here but I tried very very hard at everything I did and I did I did do well in a lot of things and I would have seemed like really like which I was most of the time like I think I look back on that and I you you wouldn't have picked it I can understand how you and Nan would have seen that and she would have been like see I did the right thing there Mm. and Alex was the same reputation yeah you know she excelled she was a a doctor of veterinary science Mm. and she was smart well-equipped from the outside had it her shit together Nan would have been like, wow, we really dodged a bullet there, I guess, in her own mind, if she ever thought about it again. I, I think yeah. you're just so, you're so astute and you're so gracious to be able to compassionately think of it like that. I feel like, I know personally speaking, that I, I'm not sure that I would be able to get the anger out of the way of that. Um, how, how have you managed to do that? Have you done a lot of 
work around that or is this just time and thinking and speaking to people? Oh, I think there's um, a very big, large spectrum of offending, right? Like I don't want to compare rapes and levels of child sexual abuse and um, that type of thing. But in summary, I think mine was fairly low grade from the disclosures that I've received since. And that puts me in a position that's really, really important because people who've experienced abuse uh, have a lived experience of that, but it's a low enough grade that, you know, I'm, I'm still like able to function You're and high functioning. communicate mm. like I can communicate what happened. I have a platform. I am just, I can't, that, that opportunity is just too great to um, pass that up. Because there's so many people who like chronic offending. So what my sister went through is that repeated offending, then a later offending, which is common in um, victims of sexual abuse because they're into substance abuse. They're just more vulnerable to sexual predators as adults as well. Mm. And that's, we know that from research. Emotionally regulate their trauma. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything special about what I'm doing. I just think that I am in a unique position. Like it wasn't as serious as it probably as it can be for a lot of people. You do speak so remarkably candidly, and I feel like, in a way, being that factual and just taking out the ambiguity means there is space to communicate and it, it, it's a very it's almost a safe space for people to listen because it's like well this is what happened this was the next thing and this is how we reacted and now this is what we can do about it and in a way that gives people something to focus on uh, rather than just dwelling in the, uh, the shocking ugliness of of that do you think that that's the way that we have to be communicating about sexual violence and abuse is to be super matter of fact and and just to to talk about it as it is, call it a spade a spade? Well, you know how I was talking about my brand of reporting, like if it makes people uncomfortable, you're probably asking a good question type of thing. Mm. I remember thinking of our experience and being like, shit, imagine if I said that out loud. Like people would just be like, what? Talking about, did that really happen to you? It's got such a shock factor because it never gets said out loud. And so... From that point on, I was like, I'm going to say things exactly as it happened and that's all I have to do and it's opening the issue wide up. I'm not doing anything special. I'm just telling you what happened and it's so unheard of that it's so effective. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to one day see a day where, you know, people talking about that doesn't carry the shock factor because that is right. We talk about these things now and also because we talk about it, they don't happen as often would be the ideal scenario. Also, um, if you say things like, well, that's what happened, it does create an effective exchange of information. Whereas if you're going, well, I'm not going to talk about exactly what the abuse was or exactly what happened, it just, it muddies the waters a bit, I think. Like a lot of people might not be ready for that and that's fine too, you know, like absolutely fine. But I, I feel it is helpful for people who don't have a lived experience to understand exactly what you're talking about Mm. yeah the podcast is incredibly compelling and um and also incredibly raw interviewing your mum how was that for your relationship and also to see her in that place of of complete grief and um and for it to be so emotional I mean how was Mm. how was that for you and and how do you protect yourself when you're going into something like that Oh, I sought assurance from mum over and over and over again that she was okay to be doing this because, you know, she had just lost her daughter and that's probably enough for most people to have to deal with. And I was like, this wouldn't have happened if she wasn't on board. But she 100% was from the very beginning. For me, like, she's like, I'll answer anything you want to know, like, if it helps you. I don't know why we haven't sort of done this before. It's just I thought you didn't want to talk about it. Yes. And that's what it so often that's is in the these assumption. situations. It's yeah. like, well, I thought you didn't want to talk about it. Oh, I'll tell you if you want to know. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, but it's still those intimate, like me talking to you here about it now is not as hard and the, the thousands of people that might listen to it is not as hard as those face-to-face intimate, like 
conversations with family members and one-on-one and like the neighbor I still Ginny, am like it's oh, excruciating a bit awkward <laughs> so full on I'm talking about any. my bits I'm talking about my bits in the most horrifying way it does not and get any more anyway. intense than that it doesn't mm. but do you know the pockets that are really nice that I really I think you can just hear your love for Alex and when you're talking um, to Alex's friends and swapping stories and they're reminiscing about, you know, hilarious moments or beautiful moments with Alex. I mean, there is also that, and I think you articulate it so well that you can have terrible things happen, but you can also have beautiful relationships and a nice life. I mean, how do you balance that in your own head? Oh yeah. I mean, I was only thinking about that just today, like for the two like really, really horrible blokes that we've had in our lives. We've had like a thousand just beautiful, lovely, go to the ends of the earth for you. I'm just going to get emotional. Um, Take all the time you need. So, yeah. And like in, in a sense for me it was that, like it was just, I think it was just once or twice and only once that I can remember. And then after that, I've just had been surrounded by people. Like I think my step-granddad died when I was like eight or something. So then he was just completely off the scene mm-hmm. and might never spoke or talk to a story again. So I think for me, like I was already in a good spot to be able to recover to a good degree. Mm-hmm. And then I've just had these lovely, like, waves of people all through my life and I think it is dependent on that like you can have these things happen to you and it just it does depend who comes in behind that like if they've got good people around you you've probably got a good chance but if you you know come across more shit people and it does make it hard Mm. yes absolutely with the well what do you want from this work you know you're working pretty full steam in this space from your articles and from your podcasts do you want to see change at a policy level and on the back of that how does talking about it prevent it one of my biggest motivators is is more information to possibly be able to take one of our perpetrators you know um press charges and by saying that it's it, it he didn't offend on me the one who is still alive who is not to be identified um, it was it was my sister, but we have a lot of information that's come through to know that he's deeply trashed many lives, and um, we would like him to be held accountable for that, and for him to undergo some kind of rehabilitation, so that he can fully understand the depth of the damage and that he has to live with that. Because at the moment, we're not so sure. Like. I don't think he really understands what what was wrong about what he's done. And predators, um, it's a behaviour. Sexual predators, it's a behaviour, okay? So it would be very unusual for someone to just do it once and then go, oh, that was a bad idea. I don't really like how that made me feel. I'm not going to do that again. Okay, we do see that um, with early offenders and in pre-offending. Um, people be like, oh, I think that was a dodgy thought. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go through with that. Like, I'm just gonna leave that one there. That was weird. Let's not think about that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of research um, with college students who have crossed the line with consent, and they know they have, and then they never offend again. Um, the second I knew that my sister had been raped, I was like, there are very, very good odds that that man has done it to somebody else as well, and I need to find those people because I'd like him to be held accountable and I don't think we can with a dead witness, which is my sister. Mm. And so that's one of my huge motivators. My, my other massive motivation is just making it safer for, well, like my kids, but everybody's kids. So we know that one in five children will be exposed to some form of sexual violence before they turn 18. So that's from the Brave Hearts Foundation, which is run by Hetty Johnson. And nobody can sort of just go on living with those risks no. like that is huge when I did reading in my son's class at school I'm just like oh which one is it like mm. which which one is it in here <sighs> which is a horrible way to like you know 
Hmm. live. So I like to, I can deal with all these things as long as I can feel like I'm doing something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I don't think any of us can just sit, stand by idly with that kind of a risk. Do you want to go get a glass of water? I think I'll be right there. And so that broader um, cultural change. So speaking about it just breaks down that huge um, wall of defence that perpetrators rely on because they, they, they offend because they know basically that you're not going to tell anybody. Mm. The second everybody starts being like, well, hang on, something happened to me, people who have already offended can be hopefully held accountable like once more of those cases get through the courts get into the police station um, people will become more adept at at doing those initial police interviews at handling those um, trials and it's hard to point the finger at anyone you know within the legal system or the law enforcement because they just haven't had the volume of people coming in you know through their systems to know how to deal with these things a lot of the time a lot of people might think it's just common sense but for a lot of people, they don't know how to have these conversations, and so, so how do you, Ginny? This is the like, uh, where are the resources? <laughs> or from a from a practical point of, you know, there are going to be people listening saying, "Well, where do we even start?" Yeah. So where would you point people, and and how do they begin? Just to just to start with, like for example, what's happening with like police and things like that. Um, a lot of this stuff is um, internal reviews, um, overhauls, like that 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 are going to take time. So I think with this movement that we're seeing right now, people are like, well, do something about it. And it's like, well, I, I, I personally believe they are. Like I know there, are, there is an overhaul happening with the police um, like all over the country right now to better equip them to handle um, like as a first responder almost. Right. Um, we know that like legal syllabuses are constantly being updated to be more trauma informed. And, you know, when you're training your barristers and future legal people who run the courtroom, they um, are all going to be better informed in these areas, but that's, you know, whole education programs have to change. So Mm. that those types of things take time Um, that I know Grace Thames just started a foundation it's an incredible resource. Right. I have a huge amount of respect for Grace Tame. I think she's wonderful. I probably wouldn't have done all the things that she's done because I'm just not that gutsy. But that foundation, go and look at it. She's just, she's a genius. Yeah. Like her first campaign is making the laws around sexual um, offending uniform all around the country mm-hmm. because right now each state has a different, like eight definitions of, you know, rape and it's it's just it's all over the shop. It makes it hard to get convictions. It makes it hard for people to harder for people to press charges. Like if we just have uniform um, consent laws, mm. uh, all of that type of thing, then it it streamlines the process and hopefully we'll get more people we'll be able to hold more people accountable. So that like that's just an example of the first thing she's done. Yeah. Braveheart Foundation. That was one of the first places I went. Like really soon after Alex died, I don't know why I was looking there, but I just wanted to know what the hallmark signs of people who'd been abused were, just to like join up the dots with her and myself and the things that we'd experienced. And and Hetty Johnson is also a powerhouse. Like she's, I've interviewed her for the podcast, and she. One of her ideas was to, um, you know, when we have a baby in hospital, we screen for rare genetic disorders and hearing screenings, which is all well and good and we need to do those things. And we have whole health campaigns mounted around sudden infant death syndrome, which is also really rare but devastating but rare. And no one tells you anything about the one in five chance that the baby that you're holding in your arms could be exposed to some kind of form of sexual violence and what to do if that happens. We're talking just that awareness. I don't know where a lot of that awareness is other than the people that I've sort of seen talking about it. And that is our greatest resource Mm. is to listen to the people who are talking about it, I guess. Yep, yep. And also, but we don't want to wait to have a lived experience to be talking about it. It would be really nice that to be having some sort of 
curriculum in schools, in primary schools and, um, and a curriculum for parents. I mean, hello, yeah, yeah. I could do with a booklet. <laughs> yeah, totally same. Like, and I know schools are introducing consent to like sex ed um, and that kind of thing, which is awesome. Really, really good. Um, I think we could, there's a lot to be done in the conversation around the predators. Okay. So we know that like, I think for every 10 research articles we have written about the victims of sexual violence, there's one about the, the actual offender. And what's going on with them? What's happening with you? Why are you doing this? Like, we really need to, like, zero in on that. And this situation requires a lot of empathy because you've got, actually, you've nearly got to be able to get in their head and think, okay, well, there's some very unhealthy thought patterns going on in here. I don't know when they're developing. They've probably been developing for a long time. There's some very destructive coping mechanisms. You've got some really, I don't know, very uh, unhealthy views towards women and girls. Mm-hmm. Like that, we need to get around that, and we need to be able to help people spot that within themselves. Like, why are you feeling like doing this? And opening the door there for you to be at, for that person to be able to get some help to not offend. And people are going to say you can't excuse um, sexual violence as some um, people who are mentally ill, right? Bonkers, okay? Well, let's not call it that. Mm. Let's call them people who have developed very unhealthy thought patterns and coping mechanisms. Let's call them that. Mm. But let's get them something to help them too because, mm. <laughs> you know, we're helping Before. the victims. We are. Yeah. Yeah. Find out why they're falling in the river the first place. Don't just try and save the drowning person. But yeah, I know, I just noticed, I found that part of the conversation really irritating when people are like, but they're not mentally ill. They're just bad. Mm. And I think really, really bad people have some really, really shit stuff going around in their head too. So can we just address that? It's amazing that you are able to bring that that level of nuance to the conversation because it certainly isn't something that I've ever considered because I haven't had to consider it, which I'm very lucky, but... I think that it's very difficult to wrap your head around the fact that someone who is capable of doing such an evil thing should be spoken to. And I think that's where we Mm. are pulling up short and perhaps failing potential victims. And I think that's a way to, to shift our perspective on that. And if I can just add one more thing that kind of irritated me about the conversation, like a national conversation, was even when people sometimes try and practice empathy in these situations, they get shot down. People who are in the dark ages on sexual violence need to be helped along to understand, you know, why women, you know, can't be, shouldn't be blamed for these types of crimes, that victim blaming is wrong, all the rest of it. Like, you know, they need to be able to get up to speed with um, where we're at with this conversation. But in order to do that, they are going to need to practice empathy. Like that's going to be a key tool for them to employ to get them on the same page as us. Well, what if that happened to me? How would I feel? What if that happened to my daughter? That would be horrific. Mm. And I would understand the full brunt of that. So when the Prime Minister said, oh, look, I asked Jenny and she said, well, think about it as if it was your daughter. And then he came on board with the situation. Okay, that's all kinds of wrong. Like you should be able to just be on board with the situation straight up, right? Mm. But some of us aren't there yet. Mm. And so he was actually employing empathy as a tool to get there and he got shot down yeah okay like I just I understand why people would be mad about the way he handled that but yeah that when you're at a party and someone says something really that in your view is really ignorant and and really hurtful you've got to be able to like swing off the other end of that and hold on you know have it just talk to them normally we've We've got to find that within ourselves somewhere to be able to have that exchange of information with people who we think are saying the most hurtful, horrible things. You've got to try and find it within you because they people tune out when you just you're really angry and you're shouty. Yes, um, I get like that, but I know that people it tunes people out. Yeah, and when I was I was at this party and it happened and I was just like I was trying to talk. Yeah. And then everyone's like apologizing to me about it afterwards. And I was like, it's okay. Like you, everybody, no one will talk to me about it. No, everyone's like, okay, I'm not talking to you about it. 
because I don't want to say the wrong thing. And it's like, well, do, because if you say the wrong thing, let's talk about that. Yeah. Yep. And the intention is good. The intention is not to rock the boat and ruffle feathers. And I suppose also, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a victim's job to educate other people either so there are there are two two sides to that coin as well isn't it like it's not someone's job to have to go to be to relive a trauma in order to start a conversation so it does take two to tango but I think this outrage olympics that we seem to be Mm. um treading through especially with a lot of keyboard warriors and there's a lot of there's just not a a lot of nuance and I think that dialogue Mm. just has to be dialed up we just have to be Mm. chatting have to have a yarn because we've come through that like I think we've come we've we've rebirth right mm. this year last year like there's been so much going on and now is our time mm. for like the solutions to start firing like these all-female um, police stations in South America specialized for reporting sexual violence wow like who I didn't know about that. Reese told me the other night I was like oh well you How know cool even if that's that? not something that we employed in Australia like it's at least worth looking into isn't it you know yeah. it might not we might not have the resources and the funding right now but shit we also do need to be throwing some money at this because women are just piling up and the dead bodies are really unsettling mm-hmm. and we are just in a prime position right now to capitalize on the platform that this issue has gained and yeah. start with the constructive solution focused types of conversation yeah it does seem like there's a win- winds of change are kind of a blowing and uh, podcasts like yours, My Sister Secrets, I, I don't know if that would have been possible or even floated three years ago, five years ago. I mean, now seems to be the perfect time for this conversation to be to be kicking off the way that you are. Yeah. And I, I hope I don't upset people because I'm far down the road now. Mm. And I, I, I realise that there are a lot of people who are, you know, where I was five years ago. And how, and I know how I would be responding to this conversation. I'd be like, well, that's all right for you to say, but you know, I can't do that right now. And that's totally, totally fine. Often people who are victims of this type of crime have to move mountains just to get through every day, like my sister did. Yeah. And I have full respect for what all of those people are doing too. Yeah. And, and the path that they're treading right now. Yeah. You talk about how the body and the nervous system remembers, even though you repressed your abuse for a long time and didn't disclose until you were 16. What do you mean by that, that the body and the nervous system remembers? Well, I remember I was in this little fashion parade in my tiny, tiny town in the town hall. And I remember feeling like gross and awful and I was just like I nearly I wouldn't go I didn't want to go on the, do the walk up and down the thing with these clothes on for the tiny little fashion parade that it was and I remember saying I feel fat mm. and I was like did what like what sort of five-year-old feels fat who's not fat at all I did have some sort of like childhood anxiety depression going on that I can remember and I just never knew why but I think it's because you have such a deep, unresolved, formative experience that's caused you so much angst and you've got nowhere to put that. Like I had no, I didn't understand even what that was at the time. And it's only as you get older that you're like, oh, you get to high school and you like learn what all of the sexual acts are. Well, that was when I learned what the sexual acts were. And I was like, oh, well, my step-granddad did that to me when I was four and I was sitting up at the kitchen table. So uh, I feel like that's I'm getting some kind of an understanding now of how wrong that was. Mm. And so I think, yeah, my body, and I've read The Body Keeps the Score, which is mm. basically everything I'm talking about right now but backed up by research. Yep. Um, and, yeah, your body just it holds on to that nervous energy. It holds on to that deep, deep sadness. Basil van der Kolk, what just that's happened. who it is, isn't it? Basil yeah. Van der Kolk. Yeah, 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 yeah. For anyone who wants to read, it's amazing. Yes, and your body holds on to that and it, and it comes up with different ways of coping with that and some ways might be positive and some ways might be really, really destructive. Like I've always been really into exercise, but I've also I've got destructive ways of dealing with it and when I was in high school I was just extremely restrictive with my eating 
I never fully progressed to anorexia because I did get help from a GP who was just like spotted me in a crowd and was just like, I know what's going on with you. You need to go see a psychologist. Yeah, she was incredible. She was, I'm just really lucky again that I stumbled into her clinic because I was like, there's nothing wrong with me. She was like, well, why don't we try a few things? And then in the end, I was like, okay, yes, there is something going on here. I was in year 11 and, and I still have that. I have these really constructive, like wonderful things that I do to deal with, you know, this um, anxiety that my body harbors and that, that self, that disgusting feeling of like that I'm just gross. Um, but I know I can see that for what it is now too, mm. you know, mm-hmm. that that's a remnant of something that happened, that's not my fault. And it's unfortunate that it happened, but we've got tools to deal with this now. So I'm like, I love my running. I drink too much wine. I am addicted to coffee wildly at the moment. I get, I get therapy. Like I still get see a psychologist. If you can just tip the balance in your favor of having you know, constructive things that you do to deal with these feelings, Mm. then I think you can get there. But like I look at where Alex was and I think she just had these coping mechanisms that were so dangerous. Mm. And I think because her pain was probably a lot greater than mine, that the offending was a lot worse and she'd had that repeat offence later in life. Like for her, I think it was just the pain was so great that she couldn't see the any way out of it Mm. I yeah I I should have said this much earlier but I am so sorry so sorry for your loss yeah same Mm. and now you have your four babies which are also um I imagine a bit of a balm and is being on the land with them a tonic yeah yep we we love it we love it so much and we've yeah we've forgotten like what it's like to live in town like my kids the other day they're like they're like do people live in here because we're just driving past like rows and rows of houses and I'm like yeah some people just live right in town there and they just drive down to the shop and it takes five minutes and they're like oh my god that's hilarious <laughs> they all laugh so hard in the back seat and they're just like that is that's whacked some people <laughs> live here and we've got the horses it's beautiful it really is the kids I think a lot of the time they're saving me because I, I can't I can't be a drunk. I can't source any cocaine. I haven't got enough money for that and I'm looking after <laughs> my kids all the time. Like they just they're a real roadblock to, to falling off the bandwagon. <laughs> yeah. And like you've got to go to bed early. I can't be an insomniac because I'm just so like I I know that insomniacs will be like, um, that's not how it works. But like when I lie down at night. I sleep like my life depends on it, which it probably does. <laughs> it yeah, like, does. so they're really, they're really good in 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 a lot of ways, and that's the reason I have to go to therapy because I'm mm. like I can't be a cranky, shitty mother all the time. I've got to go talk to someone and get some tools for this, mm. because otherwise I'm just going to feel terrible about myself, and I'm not going to be able to do the best thing by the kids. Mm. And probably I go to I go to therapy because you know you're doing it for other people too. And it's also a nice break. <laughs> yeah, nobody quit. Nobody questions you when you're like, "Oh, um, Reese, I think you're gonna need to come home for an hour from work because I need to speak to my shrink." <laughs> Everyone's like, "Yeah, you better go quick." <laughs> oh wow! Well, Ginny, you know you've given me more than an hour, so you've been incredibly generous. So thank you so much. That was so enlightening and so powerful, and I learned so. And I just uh, your bravery astounds me. Your ability to talk about this stuff just blows me away so thank you so much for everything you're doing as an incredible advocate oh thank you that's very kind of you to say i still don't know if that's just the case but i just yeah just keep going mm, one foot in front of the other hey this conversation is one that will stay with me forever I marvel at Ginny's courage and her determination to break the silence that shrouds sexual violence. As she says, silence only protects the perpetrators. She's walking her truth every day, despite her own huge personal grief and loss. And frankly, I feel a moral obligation to help shine a however meagre light on the work she's doing. She's advocacy in its purest form. 
You can listen to Ginny's investigative podcast series, My Sister's Secrets, on whatever podcast platform you prefer. We'll also include links in the show notes to some of the subjects discussed in this episode, including Australia's leading child protection organisation, Bravehearts, and Dr. Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. I'd also love to mention that our first issue of Grazy Her magazine is hitting the stands on March 7. If you subscribe to two or three years now, you'll still be able to catch the last of our special 2022 diaries, which are basically a calendar of country events. There is so much goodness within. Check it out at grazyher.com.au. Until next time, keep well. This is a Grazy Her podcast produced by me.